Welcome to Screaming Bloody Oranges, the Invisible Oranges podcast. This is writer and IO podcaster Joe April. On this episode, number 13 for our program, we've gathered a number of our staff together to discuss the recent passing of LG Petrov, the famous frontman of Swedish death metal pioneers Entombed. The group discusses the history, legacy, and our own personal experience with Petrov's indelible mark on heavy metal. Without further ado, let's dive in. Joining us today on the podcast is Ted Newble. Hey. Brandon Corsair. Hi. And as always, Langdon Hickman. Uh, Still the Buddha right now. (laughs) Uh, And today we have a bit of a somber subject. Um, Very recently on uh, March 7th, the Entombed frontman who later went to form Entombed AD and was an original member of the death metal pioneers Nihilus, LG Petrov passed away from bile duct cancer. Um, This has kind of been hitting the entire death metal and underground metal community at large, seeing uh, reports and memories from all sorts of bands. So we thought it was the good time to discuss it. Um, So, yeah, uh, obviously it's a shock anytime a big death like this hits the metal community. Um, Langdon, what has been your initial thoughts processing this? It hit me in a way that I wasn't really expecting. It reminded me a lot of um, something along the line of when, I don't know, Bowie or Lemmy died in a certain way, but for, for the death metal world where it's like, it's inestimably uh, hard to describe like what left hand path means to death metal as a whole. Not, not even to touch on the rest of his entire career. And, you know, he had like decades and decades worth of material. A lot of it just like absolute, like fucking fantastic hall of fame level shit. Um, But even just that, that one record is in a lot of ways, like, like the Ramones debut record for death metal. Um, like so much of what we hear now and especially like the old school death metal revival stuff revolves almost singularly around that one record. Uh, Cause like this has been mentioned before, like with contemporary death metal, especially the bigger Vogue, you don't necessarily hear a huge amount of, of like immolation or cannibal corpse, you know, all these different colors that were all very, very much present. It almost like fully comes down to entombed, um, and then all the great work that he was putting out with Entombed AD after, which, um, depending on where you land on it, the uh, the death and roll stuff is either like, you know, your bread and butter for Entombed, or the earlier stuff is. But the fact that with Entombed AD we got we got the older stuff back as well. Just I don't know. I feel like this must have been what people felt shortly after Chuck Schuldiner died, of just like such a foundational figure um it it almost doesn't feel real to me but that's almost it's half because he almost doesn't feel real to me like these are these they, they feel like records that came out of some like miasma rather than like that people made well it was it was kind of uh it's almost surreal the timing because you know i'm pretty hugely into death metal and i i had been doing a, a straight up entombed worship thing unrelated to anything with a buddy of mine when 
you know, when Lars died. And so we had been spending a lot of time talking about Lars's vocals, you know, in particular. And, you know, Left Hand Path for me was one of the very first death metal records I ever got into. You know, it was, I mean, it was Seven Churches, is like an ever-flowing stream, and it was Left Hand Path. Those were my very first death metal records as a kid. And so, you know, it's it wasn't necessarily surprising because he had had cancer for at least a few months and people knew that he was sick, but it was still just a deep blow to have this, this legendary figure, this, you know, high standard for a certain style of death metal vocals. And one of the pioneering innovators of a genre just pass away. So fucking young. Yeah. I mean, like we haven't had, I guess, uh, I don't want to like put numbers on, but like that's like death metal in general is, you know, a little bit newer than, like classic heavy metal, so it hasn't had that many deaths that we that we, we can think about. Like definitely, there are obviously like Chuck Schuldiner, Schuldiner. I I don't know, um, you know, and some others like the Cynic, uh, bassist mm-hmm. stuff like that. So like there have been deaths, but there's not been that many. And especially like, you know, again, this is like one of the founding uh, bands, but like it wasn't really a band we felt was really that far in the past yet. Uh, I like to think 1990 isn't that far away, even though it actually is about 30 years now. Um, so it was definitely just a shock thing about, like, oh, shit, like, that's where we're at now. This is where we've come to, and this is not going to be, you know, obviously, like, it's inevitable, right? But, like, just didn't yeah. kind of think it was coming this soon. It's, I mean, in the metal community in large, we've had some pretty big deaths, but it is a bit, it's weird, sort of, like, you can kind of categorize certain ones that happen in the community, which I think is universal in any community, because it's not like people dying in metal is all that unique compared to rock or any other genre. I feel like we have the ones who die too young where it's sort of like uh, drugs and alcohol, suicide, those sort of things or pure accidents. Um, Obviously the biggest example of that is Cliff Burton falling out of the bus um, when it hit uh, ice in Sweden. Um, You know, and then stuff like Bon Scott, you know, yeah, choking to death uh, after drinking too much. Um, we even have like Corthon's death, where it was just like and that. Yeah, well, and then that's sort of the other category where it's like Randy Rhodes. Yeah, yeah. And, and then there's that other category where whether they're young or middle aged, there's sort of that freak health exception where it's like they're they die younger than the average lifespan of what you would expect for that kind of person, even given maybe the you know extremities of the touring life and heavy metal life. Um, but yeah, like Horthrone, uh, Chuck Schulner, and, and definitely I think with um, Petrov here, because um, dying from cancer at 49, that's, you know, that's a rare thing to happen, just as it was with Horthrone dying from a heart condition and I think he was only in his 30s. Chuck, it's crazy. Like, I was looking it up today. In December, it's going to be 20 years since Chuck died. And he was 34 when he died. And I'm 34 now. So it's this weird feeling of, like, you know, I've done jack with my life compared to what Chuck has done. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, and it's like, surreal kind of thought about that but Langdon what were you gonna say it, about that it's it, it's hard especially to to grapple with in the case of Petrov because on one hand you 
normally we try to compartmentalize these things by solacing ourselves with the life that the person lived. Um, it's one of the few things that we can really do to help compartmentalize death, which is often understandably far too big a thing for our brains to really wrap around. We talked about this a lot um, after the passing of Riley Gale as well, that, you know, it's it's obviously the biggest, scariest thing about being alive is, is the idea of not being alive anymore. Um, but where with Riley, we didn't have what hurt so much was seeing this like massively promising career that had delivered like literally nothing but excellent work and increasingly excellent work just suddenly go away. In the case of Petrov, there's that there's that urge to maybe solace ourselves with like the very first record that he seriously put out with Entombed because, you know, they, they were around before they had a couple different name changes um, and then you know, they settled and put out Left Hand Path and, you know, from there had a legendary career. It's easy to go like, oh, well, you know, he did actually live a nice full. And then you look at the number and you go, wait, he was 49 years old like that, that really hard juxtaposition that like his life in front of our eyes as a performer takes up more than half of his life. And he hadn't even turned 50 yet. Like, especially for it, it may be something a little bit harder for people to grasp if they're, you know, in their twenties or in their teens hearing this, but for anyone in their thirties or forties, hearing this, that kind of thought is really, um, really jarring and surreal in a specific kind of way that like obviously had a, a monumental life. Uh, like literally nothing can take that away. If, if you can wrap up literally like any given person in music would give their left arm for the kind of legacy that just left hand path has the fact that they then have clandestine, they have Wolverine blues, they have like, they have this entire like world of stuff that's crazy. And then you look at his age again and it just like like my my mom is 72 and that's that's a full on like 23 additional years of I, I don't know. It just it, it makes the brain yeah. short circuit. It's you know, it's not like, you know, it's it's different than Riley Gale and that Riley, I think, you know. Power Trip only had two albums out. It felt like they were very much heading towards some level of major success. And I think we could say Entombed kind of hit as high as they were going to get. And barring something very extraordinary happening, um, you know, I. but I think, you know, it, it, most people reach a certain point in their career where they're comfortable with where they are, they're comfortable with their fan base. And that doesn't mean they stop doing what they're doing, stop putting emotional investments or, you know, intellectual curiosity in their work. Um, so, I th I mean, you know, with the way Entombed AD was going, I certainly think, you know, again, he wasn't going to stop. Um, he was the kind of guy who was like, let's just keep on going. Let's do more music. Like, uh, he was a lifer. Um, so I think it's true to say that while there may not have been – it wasn't felt like there were heights that were taken away from us as a community. There were still years and years of him being a part of so many people's lives um, that now just aren't going to be there. And it's, I kind of want to talk about what makes his like vocal special. I think Brandy talked about he kind of analyzing that, so maybe you could tell us like you know your thoughts on like what made 
you know, his contribution to the left-hand path, kind of like what it is, et cetera? Well, that, that's an interesting one because a lot of people like to think of death metal vocals as being, you know, this kind of monolithic, atonal grunting or whatever. But I think that when you look back at left-hand path, you know, and, and that is kind of what Lars was doing, like, with Nihilist. But, like, you look at left-hand path and it's just, it's really impressive how dynamic the vocals on that record were because it's not just like he was growling constantly and he did have a really cool fucking growl too. I mean, he, he was, he could go from kind of shouting to bellowing to almost a howling sometimes in the same song. But then on top of that, he had a couple sections that were pretty much just sung though. He, they did it very sparingly. Obviously he did spoken word stuff. He had a really good sense for one to hold a note or when to just do something really guttural quickly and staccato that that sense of dynamics is a large, a large reason why left-hand path, despite having this really morbid atmosphere is also so fucking insanely catchy and infectious is you don't just have some guy constantly making the same guttural noises over it. You had Lars who was really a master of his craft at the time and who really knew what to do or what not to do to just kind of put each song at its highest. I mean, to to piggyback off of that, we get, if we look at death metal prior to Left Hand Path, we see certain figures like very early uh, Morbid Angel. We see uh, Death, obviously. We see Seven Churches from um, from possessed. And then we see that kind of murkier end of thrash metal that definitely like straddles the line, like morbid saint could play on a bill with death metal bands just as much as they could play in a bill with, uh, with thrash bands because of, um, but sort of the defining trait of vocals up until that point had been pushing them more and more extreme and gross, but unfortunately kind of flat, um, not terribly shocking. Death metal as a whole was literally only a couple of years old. So at that point, it was really just we play thrash metal, but this guy barks like he's throwing up. Um, and that's that's what makes us different. Um, but obviously, heavy metal has a much greater tradition of theatricality. I mean, it's it's the genre that has, you know, uh, as much ties to Deep Purple and Arthur Brown as it does to, you know, to Black Sabbath. Um, and so. It, it really can't be overstated how a lot of the shape of the modern the modern colors that you expect from a vocalist in death metal really come from from Petrov. Like we get a lot of it's one of those elements that doesn't necessarily get as um, as critically examined as often as, say, like guitar lines, like what it what at a certain point differentiated that's a death metal riff and not a thrash metal riff anymore what's a death metal way to approach drums versus say a thrash metal or a heavy metal we have lots and lots of of language and analysis about that um and even can point to specific records but it's sometimes surprisingly um thin to see the amount where it's like on a contemporary death metal record if someone's very monotone you know the the go-to thing is like, oh, this sounds almost like a deathcore record where it's like all low all the time or all high shrieks all the time. He was one of the first guys who really had like a very wide palette in a way that it almost sounds not as impressive now, but because it is so prototypical, like it, it, 
the effect of it was near immediate as well. Like you can see death metal records literally from 1991 forward. So the very next year, um, all sort of turned, looked at that record and went, oh, shit, that's the way we're supposed to do this. Um, you see that shift happening within death. You saw Morbid Angel adopting far more varied vocal approaches, especially compared to um, Alters of Madness. Um, you see Cannibal Corpse. One of their one of the big defining things for Cannibal Corpse was that jump from from Barnes to Corpse Grinder. And a lot of that can be attributed to the fact that Corpse Grinder has a vocal palette and Barnes really, really doesn't. He has one thing and he does it well, but it's, it's just the one thing. But yeah, being able to point it like you didn't do it well forever. It, it, that's true. <laughs> but like we can point it one guy for that. That's that's a really special thing, and it gets shockingly kind of overlooked sometimes, even despite how big the name Entombed is. I think the other thing is sort of like even the wider influence of how, and obviously I think his vocals are part of that, but. When we look at early nihilists and well, nihilists and early entombed, you know, and I think the tribute that Enslaved gave really kind of highlighted in terms of how you know the second wave of black metal. Most of those guys started off as death metal, and a big reason for why they even did that in the first place was the earliest Swedish death metal that was coming out, and to some extent, stuff like Autopsy and the stuff that was influencing the Swedish death metal scene, but. Certainly in the tribute Enslaved gave, it just made very clear how important Entombed and Petrov were as an influence on a huge swath of that scene. Yeah, but I think we're going to discuss, argue, whatever term is more accurate about this later. But I think uh, it can definitely be said that if it wasn't for Petrov's vocals, there really would not have been much to those later records after, um, well... After Left Hand Path, I guess we want to skip over the things he wasn't on. But if you know what I mean, like that death and roll sound is basically only achievable in an interesting way because of Petra's vocals and how they can like go from that extreme death approach to something, you know, a little more like rock and roll, I guess, is probably the easiest way to say. I think rock and roll is the right one, given that Nikki had helicopters. Yeah. Uh I mean, well, let's just dive into We're gonna it. have some uh, disagreements on yeah. that one. Uh but <laughs> I just anticipate it. Well, mostly yeah. we're going to disagree with Joe. Um. Yeah. yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the punching bag here. Uh, I, uh, You know what? It's funny. Like the one Entombed album I've mostly avoided was Same Difference. And I had a friend of mine, actually a fellow writer at IO here, uh, mention it's one of his favorite albums. So I went back and listened to a few tracks. And I have to agree. There's stuff on there I like. Uh, I... Don't have an entombed album I hate. I like pretty much everything they've done. Um, and now I can kind of include same difference even into that. Um, so feel free to grab some mud and fling it at me because, uh, yeah, I like it. <laughs> so I think I think unlike with Carcass, uh, I'm I do not really abide their black and roll experiment with uh, with Swan Song. Um not not my thing don't like it at all um with entombed i do have to acknowledge that like they're doing it they're doing it well too many people that i know and respect not only say that they like those records but say that they pull from them that i can sort of acknowledge that there's probably something there that i'm not grabbing on to like i know that um i've had discussions with um 
uh, Joe Schaefer, who is former editor in chief here about how he really loves to ride, shoot straight and speak the truth. Um, and I've since, because of those conversations, gone back and re-listened to it and heard a lot of things that I thought were, you know, really at least interesting about it. Um, I'm I, admittedly like uh, I'm more uh, like I love death metal. I love death metal. Death metal is the best. We all I need is more death metal. So for a while, um, Left Hand and Clandestine were like the two entombed records for me. I had no no malice against the other ones. I just I heard Wolverine Blues and it just sort of it's like, OK, that's not that's not really what I want. Vocals are damn incredible. I think that's the again, for me, that's uh, as Ted was saying, that was the big the big difference between that and Carcass, where uh, this is, again, no knock to Carcass, but Petrov just clearly had the knack and charisma for a more like rockin like motorhead ish attitude with their music that I'm like, OK, I can I can see the charisma here. I can see why this would move somebody. I just I wish the riffs were death metal. That's because that's because death metal is the best. I, I'm going to say <laughs> disagree. Big disrespect on Carcass when Bill when Bill Steer stopped doing vocals and it was all Jeff Walker. It just there even all else aside, what Jeff was doing vocally was just not good. Swan Song's vocals are just not good, but That's true. you know, I don't know. Would you extend that to uh heartwork though? Heartwork vocally was okay. The music was not very good. Brandon, uh, I'm Brandon. sorry, but <laughs> you should be. Thank to, you. Back to Lars, <laughs> back to Lars, who we're here to talk about true. as much as I think that everything after clandestine kind of sucks. Lars did not suck on those records. He was the good part of a bunch of records that I think are very bad. Some some of them were. I mean, like Wolverine Blues was, you know, solid. I don't think I would ever buy it or listen to it ever again on purpose, but it's not bad. Someone put it on the car. I wouldn't be like, please, for the love of God, put on something better. But, you know, Lars was Lars was always good. And a lot of bands that got weaker over the years, like like another big one is like Thomas Lindbergh and At The Gates, like. He said he was so fucking emotional and scary sounding on the early at the gate stuff or in grotesque or whatever. And he is so not scary sounding later on. And you can't say that about Lars. He was always scary sounding, or at least he sounded good on the material he was on. Well, while I do love uh, the later at the gate stuff, um, I do have to acknowledge it, it, at least the the main point that I'm I'm one of those people where I prefer like uh, like slaughter and terminal spirit or not slaughter. Sorry, I prefer like terminal spiritual disease and red in the sky to uh, slaughter of the soul. Um, all great records, obviously. So that's it's like comparing diamonds. But no, no. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> I like red in the sky. Yeah, the, the, the audience can't see, but. Uh... Brandon had a thumbs down there when. Well, you don't even like terminal spiritual disease. It's it's not good. I actually do like Slaughter of the Soul, largely because it sounds like a worse version of better bands from around the same time, like Sacrilege <laughs> or Eucharist. But I really, by far, prefer Red in the Sky is Ours and Gardens of Grief. Well, I mean, those are the two best ones. That's I mean, that's why I like actually. That's why I like uh, to drink from the night itself, because it returns almost to that like gothic rotting castle death metal sound that I associate with those. I mean, earlier I think ones. I think 
the interesting thing is, you know, and to, to bring it a little bit back to Entombed is, uh, I think part of their importance is the fact that they're one of those death metal bands that then went on to do something different. And we can say that with Carcass, we can say that with At The Gates, um, both of those bands went on to influence both, and Entombed as well, a lot of these bands went on to influence how, you know, from the mid-90s onward, hardcore and death metal would interbreed with each other. I mean, we talk about in, you know, the 2000s and 2010s, like the whole Entombed core and, yeah. and that, you know, the HM2 sound finding its way into hardcore and, you know, uh, crust punk bands, um, you know, and in the same way at the gates and, you know, had a huge influence on metalcore and carcass, the whole melodic death metal scene. I mean, Michael Imot's going in, then coming out, starting Arch Enemy. I mean, it's just clear as day. Um, and, you know, we, we were discussing kind of pre-chat uh, about Entombed, you know, they are sort of uh, the start of death and roll um, in many ways, at least popularizing it. Um that's for me something that's it was never hard for me to get into like Wolverine blues and what they've did since then with that. Um, I mean, for me, it's just sort of like bringing the roots of what made death metal closer back to stuff like GBH motorhead, um, and all those kinds of influences. Um, you know, maybe throwing a little bit of ACDC. Um, the thing I found most, most satisfying about their death and roll period was something that only came to me sort of um, after the fact. And it was when they semi reformed and then due to legal trouble, they had to take up the name Entombed AD, um, one of a million bands around that period that were throwing on AD or BC in order to evade legal trouble. <clears throat> and if, if you were like following like metal in a journalistic sense, then you saw a million and one jokes and entombed were the butt of a couple of jokes like that, where it's like, okay, this is apparently the new in vogue thing. And then those early singles dropped for back to the front or first it was the album art. Actually the album art for that dropped. And one thing that I love about heavy metal in general, but also death metal in specific is outside of a couple, like, like boring old fuddy duddies. We're not, we're not afraid to embrace like the aesthetic element that something like the album art or the promo photos or the logo design does have some like coloring element to the music. Like it doesn't, it it doesn't fundamentally change it, but it, it reframes things in certain ways. And I looked at that image and I went, Oh fuck is like, is like death metal entombed back. And then, you know, you hear that first single, you hear, Petrov perpetually sounded like a 22 year old. He perpetually sounded like he was pissed off 22 years old and ripped shit on beer um, in, in the best possible way. And, you know, the rest of the band sounded it like because of because of the Entombed AD stuff, providing this like alternate history of like, what if after clandestine back to the front was our third record? And, you know, then we have, uh, you know, Dead Dawn as our fourth record. Ballads of the Earth as our fifth record since we have that such a clear divergence, it made me it made me uh, much more able to accept the death and roll stuff because they seem to even retroactively go back and go like, OK, well, you know, that works for some people and some people had some issues. And so here is, you know, 
here's an alternate version of, you know, if you guys had your ideal and now like literally all of us get to have our cake and eat it, too. Just like what a phenomenal and the fact that he sounds the same like that part. You hear what he's doing with his voice. That's not easy stuff to do. And that's I mean, there's a reason why a lot of vocalists, you know, drift away from that over time or make it a lot more spare. Their touring schedule lightens up, things like that. It's it's hard to do. Motherfucker sounded exactly the same as a record he cut when he was 19, like or 18. I think I think he was 18 when he cut left hand path. I mean, I don't I don't know how much he sounds exactly like he did on left hand path, but I will say from at least Wolverine blues, it ha- his voice hasn't changed that much, um, which is pretty remarkable for anyone, you know, then doing it 10, 15, 20 years later. Um, I mean, it, it, extreme vocals. I mean, Chuck changed his voice. Clearly, he's one of the prime examples of, of that. And, and some people, yeah, it just gets to be a little too much. Um, so it is kind of impressive how stable he was with keeping that presence. Cause that's something that can make a band feel like, feel like they should throw in the towel when it's like certain people just aren't able to do what they were able to do before. And definitely with Petrov, I feel like that was never something in question with him. It's like, yeah, man, I don't know if he can still do it. It's like, even up to the last Entombed AD album, the last shows he was doing, he was kicking it. What do you guys feel about Entombed AD? Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting you're saying about it. I mean, the narrative for me when I think of the Entombed catalog and then it going into Entombed AD is... um, Obviously, you have the big change when, um, you know, Nikki left um, after to ride, shoot straight and speak the truth. And same difference happened where it was a little bit more like alternative rock and kind of attempted to, to even get further from death metal. And I think they knew that didn't work out well. So they went to Uprising, which was kind of returned to death and roll. And then from there, I think it was sort of always been this balance between death and roll and death metal. Like Morningstar had Morningstar had some thrash metal thrown in, death metal thrown in, all within the death and roll template. I think Inferno was a continuation of that. And Serpent Saints came out, and I think it was almost half and half, where it was like death and roll and death metal. And then, although I would say that album's not a great one, I think... Petrov took what was done on that and then kept it going with even more death metal in Entombed AD. For me, that's yeah, I mean, how I look at it. I mean, I think I think for a lot of us um, who are much more adherents of Left Hand Path and Clandestine, um, the issue was always one of riff writing and especially the way that there was a shift in the approach that uh, that their drummer used that altered the energy, even even when death metal parts were being played on the guitars. It just, it didn't have that same, like, there was always something, like, almost doomy about Left Hand Path, even when they were playing fast. Like, we mentioned we mentioned a little bit earlier with uh, with the really early stuff from Out the Gates, like, death metal that feels like it's being played inside of a rotting castle. Um, and then later, the, the instrumental stuff kind of shifted away from that. But like you were saying, Petrov really didn't. Petrov sounded like like a bone ghoul or something that was like ripping through a graveyard or some shit all the time. It's, it's kind of funny you mentioned the riffing changing because 
the band was so hardline on a, on a couple of chord progressions that they really liked towards the beginning that they would scrap anything that wasn't that wasn't mean enough sounding and wasn't in those two progressions. And it wasn't until clandestine that they stopped doing that. And so that's like the moment that you can tell they lost interest in death metal is the moment they stopped using their favorite two chord progressions because (laughs) they didn't care about it being as mean as possible anymore. But I do want to take a very quick sidebar while we're talking because we are talking about Lars and everyone knows that he was, you know, this kick-ass monstrous vocalist but somehow it escapes a lot of people that he was also a super killer drummer. And he actually played in Morbid along with, you know, the very famously deceased Dead from Mayhem. Um, and he played, the, the most notable one was the December Moon demo, which he also played in with, I think it was, I'd, I'd have to check, I think it was Ulf from, uh, also from Entomb that he played in with, on this demo. And it's just this fucking killer, black death, thrash, primordial stuff. And you would never know that one of the most famous vocalists in Swedish death metal was drumming on there. He's like fucking 15 years old before before Nihilist even started. I mean, it's just crazy. I had completely forgotten about that until he passed. Like that. And I. But like I, I own that that re-release compilation that uh, came out not too long ago of, of Morbid's demos. Just it's just because it's really great stuff. And also, if you're if you're into heavy metal history, it's you know you, you can't really not have it. Like regardless of your feelings about Dead as a person, like you know, as, as a historical figure to, to heavy metal, it's it's worth knowing about if you're into that kind of thing. But yeah, it becomes it becomes this fascinating alternate alternate world where it's like. I almost especially hearing how frantic and animalistic he is on on the drums for those songs like they are not he is not clean. He's but he's the right kind of dirty. It's yeah. not like he can't play. It's like like that beautiful feeling at a punk show. He wouldn't have worked in Entombed, but yeah, well, I, I think and I'm like we like, had Mike Browning as a, as. Oh, you go on. <laughs> I was going to talk about Morbid Angel. <laughs> I, I was just going to say the the first uh, Nihilist demo, I, I actually do feel like you do kind of feel those strands to Morbid. Um, you feel that connection. Um, and Brandon, thank you for bringing that up because uh, I love that demo, the Morbid demo, December Moon. Um, and just everyone out there listening to this, go listen to that now. I'm sure it's streaming everywhere. Um it's amazing little piece that just kind of doesn't get mentioned much where again, those late eighties where black metal and death metal weren't, you know, uh, very defined as they would be coming to the nineties. And so much of it is just intermixed. I, I still think it's talking about that same first demo with nihilist, you know, only shreds remain. Like it's fucking mind blowing that a fucking 16 year old wrote that fucking main riff on revel and flesh. It's just, the fucking sickest, heaviest riff, and it's like a bunch of fucking kids. It's just unreal. Well, what do you think about the fact that, um, like today, I, you know, in kind of preparation for this, I was watching a bunch of stuff on Entombed, and I was watching, I think, an interview with Alex and uh, and Lars, who, if people were a little confused, uh, LG, the L stands for Lars, um, and I'm freaking... <laughs> G, which I think is his middle name. Um, so 
when we say LG Petrov, we mean um, Lars Goran Petrov. Uh, and I probably butchered that because I suck at all Scandinavian languages. Um, <laughs> but uh, the point was, I was watching an interview with yeah Alex and, and LG, and they were talking about how they felt like uh, Left Hand Path for them was a hardcore punk album. Um, that, you know, for them, that was where they were coming from. And obviously there was metal in it and everything, but they were saying at the time, and, you know, this interview I think was in 2010 or something like that, but they felt like, I think songwriting-wise, that was what primarily was going into it. And I've seen other interviews with Nikki and others elsewhere that that was obviously a big influence on them. I mean, that that makes perfect sense from from a specific angle that, like, thrash metal the the birther of all these kinds of extreme metals is is literally the combination of heavy metal and hardcore like like very literally that's where it comes from the term was originally used more to describe punk bands and then like you know like dirty rotten imbeciles and and things early corrosion of conformity and then eventually came to be applied to uh to heavy metal bands um a lot of the birth of death metal, as we know it, was re-injecting thrash into it. This is also part of why I, I have the mildly controversial stance that most grindcore should be associated with death metal. Like, obviously, the usage of the two different words makes sense. But if someone includes napalm death or agoraphobic nosebleed in something about death metal, that makes perfect sense. We all know it's being said. And even even black metal, in a certain way, was looking at i'm right though i'm right though brandon you can't see it but i'm right <laughs> i mean not a gore no, but, uh, agoraphobic nosebleed definitely <laughs> death though but even even black metal um was initially defined as trying to reset uh death metal back to this hardcore punk leaning like sound that it had for a period so the idea that they thought of left hand path as a hardcore record doesn't surprise me whatsoever. It also explains a lot how, like, why that record resonated so much with, um, with, uh, hardcore and metalcore fans. Obviously, metalcore being a slightly dirty word because it covers anything from, like, Earth Crisis and Converge to, you know, all that remains and, yeah. To be fair, it does sound like that interview was with the two members of the band Circa Left Hand Path that did not write any of the music on Left Hand Path. So that was all uh, Nikki and, and uh, well, it was, it was Nikki and it was Ulf. So they both have songwriting credits on it. I mean, Nikki, Nikki was pretty clear about that. How, it, it, I mean, even if you just listen to it, you look at the songwriting, yeah. you look at the, the track length, it's clearly punk influence. Like when you have songs oh, yeah. that are two, three minutes long. And, and I think what they were doing is, the one thing that punk has usually done very well and hardcore punk to a certain extent, but, but definitely old punk is uh, catchy songwriting. Like, it's like, is it a punk song without a hook? It's like, it's hard to do that. Um, well, yeah. And they put that into the extremity of, you know, what was happening in the late eighties. Um, and then, you know, with that, you get something like left hand path. I mean, we, we do get sometimes this overly like 
genre strict um t- typically tends to be like the armchair metal academic that doesn't really align with how like metal musicians are where we retroactively go like what are the one or two vectors that this band used to arrive at this sound and then you ask them and they're like no we listen to all kinds of stuff like i guarantee you they loved abba guarantee you like they're from scandinavia they love abba also they have ears they love abba um so like and, you know, Metallica was open about that, where they're like, yeah, we're listening to all kinds of stuff like thrash metal didn't come from one thing plus one other thing. It was, you know, this entire world. And even if we're consciously like we are really in a hardcore phase right now, the guys clearly knew their Judas Priest. The guys clearly knew the Possessed record. He uh, LG had played in Morbid and so had all these connections with like had absolutely heard Hellhammer and all this stuff. So, yeah. Absolutely. That also, I think, draws draws the through line from the hardcore into the death and roll that like that stuff was always in there. I may yeah. have liked how they arranged it better in one era than another, but I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't out of the blue. And you can't you can't talk about nihilist and entombed without talking about like a social moderate liquidation, you know, the all of the Swedish crust bands that at 13 or 14 years old were pushing extremity in the early eighties. But then also, like you said, you know, obviously they were all listening to other stuff too. Like, especially around clandestine, they were talking in in old interviews, they'd be mentioning like, Oh, you know, we fucking love atheist. You know, it's like, they weren't living in this bubble. And to be fair, they might, you know, maybe when they were 15 years old, they hadn't heard, you know, everything out there yet. But by the time that left-hand path came out, they had been tape trading and they had been in, in touch with zines that would ask them tough questions that made them go listen to stuff. And, you know, it was, uh, it's a big world out there and they knew it. Do you guys want me to talk about like how we kind of came into the world of entombed or like, you know, kind of your first experience with it? Cause I have a strange one, I think. So I think I can kick it off. If that sounds cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, yeah. Hit us with it. that. Yeah. So, I mean, my actual first experience with them was, uh, with a lot of things actually it was Pandora kind of, Right when that service came out, it was like not complete garbage, but still kind of garbage, but in a nice like early internet way. Um, and they would play me tracks from their live album at the Royal Theater in somewhere uh, on Real Estate. I don't know if you guys heard that one, but yeah, yep. it is actually so. Yeah, it's it's definitely all death and roll. They did like Left Hand Path as an outro, which is um, well, well, yeah, that was the one that kind of came right after inferno and it's a lot of inferno and morningstar which again i love but uh no go ahead yeah it sounds it sounds great in the live setting though like that stuff translated really well to the live record they also did a cover of uh rocky erickson's song uh night of the vampire which is just an amazing song and worked really well as a cover for them they did a little bit of like you know they, they kind of beefed up the outro of it that kind of stuff brought in the harmonies but like with petrov's voice on that that shit is great so like Again, the riffs, I was like, I could use a few more notes in here, you know, but uh, the vocals on that album is, is really good, especially in like that live kind of theater setting. So from there, I kind of went on to find out, you know, they had other albums and other sounds and I basically worked backwards, I would say. I think Left Hand Path was later on, but like I was kind of primed for that stuff by the time I'd heard Wolverine Blues and it's kind of like essentially like, oh, OK, so you just go faster and you take away like the, the rock and roll is kind of what you get here. And for me, you know, Entombed was just kind of one of the many bands that I got into right after the first few death metal bands that I had heard that really kicked off my love for the genre. So I'm not going to talk about 
a made up moment, which not, I'm not saying you guys have one, but for me, it would be a made up moment if I was like, oh yeah, left-hand pad changed my life. But for me, a really big one was when I first picked up guitar and was first writing death metal for the very first time. Because unlike probably a lot of people that do this stuff, uh, like we were talking about before the show, I don't come from like necessarily a background where I know a lot of journalists or I spend a lot of time doing this. I, you know, I'm a musician first and foremost. And so for me, the biggest thing that has always stuck out with me about Left Hand Path and why it's such a special record is I wrote my first death metal songs and I sent them over to a really good buddy who I trust a lot. And he basically shit all over them and was like, look, listen to Drowned. And then he just gave me a bunch of super specific notes on all of the ways that Drowned made my my earliest death metal demo stuff just look like and sound like shit. And so my big experience with Entombed is not just that I love Left Hand Path. It's that I spent a lot of fucking time trying to figure out how to songwrite by trying to break down just what made Left Hand Path so special. And so it's it's been, even though most of my music doesn't sound very much like it, most, um, some of it does, uh, you know, it's just, it's been a pretty huge influence in everything I've done just because of, it's how I learned to songwrite. Mine is actually pretty, pretty similar to that. Um, not so much on the music, like music writing end, but for, I mentioned this before, um, for years and years, and even now in a, in a big way, I consider myself like a writer first and foremost, not a journalist, not, not even necessarily a critic, but like I write a lot of fiction. I write a lot of poetry. I write a lot of nonfiction stuff. And so music has always been this big love for me, but it's in many ways also been like, I'll use it to create a mood or an image or an atmosphere in my head that I then try to, and that led pretty seamlessly into me falling into heavy metal. I've talked about that before. I've talked about how death metal was like this big growing up around a bunch of punks. There was something about death metal that felt like it was mine, but also it was so image rich, like the album covers, the sound of the records, the music videos, like it felt like going into a world, which in a lot of ways, the like sneering at pretension punks around me seemed like they almost didn't have the vision for like they wanted music to only be the notes or only be the show and not be this whole universal thing. So I get into death metal and, you know, I liked Morbid Angel, like Cannibal Corpse. You know, I, I got into it through through Opeth and that kind of stuff. So I got introduced to like Atheist and Cynic and Demilich pretty early. But Entombed wound up accidentally being this big like this big hole in my knowledge for a while. Like I heard Wolverine Blues and I saw the music video. I, fa- I saw the famous uh, Beavis and Butthead response to the music video that um, <laughs> happened on the show and yeah. Unlike when they responded like Morbid Angel, where I was like, what the fuck was that? I need that right now. Um, That kind of turned me off. And so I sort of assumed they were just not my thing. And I was like, "Okay, that's fine. Heavy metal's a big world. Death metal is also a big world. It's good that there's more music than just stuff I like, because that means it's a big world. Um, But then I mentioned to someone near the end of high school or something that like, you know, here are some bands that I like. Here's some stuff. And they were like, you like death metal. Have you heard Left Hand Path? And I was like. What's that? And they went, shut the fuck up. Okay, come with me right now. Um, very grateful for that. So, um, like, it, 
I was already into death metal, but it was very much just one of those like, no, you've already listed, you know, all these other records like like I loved Autopsy and I loved Incantation and um, Immolation and all this stuff. They're like, no, you need to hear this one, too. Um, Yeah. And just like I I I knew about HM2 death metal, um, which is. One, as a as a very slight sidebar, I do really love how the death metal world is as non precocious and non uh, like special with their subgenre names that to a death metal fan, you can call something HM HM2 death metal. And they're like, ah, yeah, sounds like entombed. Good. Love it. Love that shit. Anyone outside of it's like, that's too specific. What does that mean? And then to because we're all stupid. We love death metal. We're, we're dumb. We're dumb in the good way. So it's like, yeah, oh, that pedal rules. But yeah, it's so it, it was. Yeah. Uh, you go on. No, I, I mean, that, that will make maybe for an interesting conversation in a later podcast. But, you know, we, I, you know, we have the big one about genres and everything. But then there is that thing where there's also sort of like pet genres where uh-huh. we kind of come up with cutesy little names. And we all know what it means and understands. Uh, like when you say HM2 death metal, I know. I know exactly what you mean. But no one would be like, oh, that's a serious genre. We should, you know, academically categorize. It's like, eh, doesn't need to happen. Um, anyway, getting back to personal experiences of the band, you know, I, I think Brandon's right in that one should be honest about how one comes into it. Cause obviously you could say, you know, uh, it, it you know, in the worst case, it's with black metal. You get these people like I was born in, you know, in the cradle with, you know, Dark Thrones, you know, blazing the northern sky. It's like, no, you weren't. Um, so it's like I had recently fallen off a cliff after being exploded <laughs> by giant birds. And then this album reached down its hand and lifted me to safety, suckling me with its uh, with its honey filled breasts. And you're like, what? Like, what the That's fuck? I got into Slayer. So, uh, I mean. yeah, yeah. Brand- Brandon apparently had Slayer. all the great shit just dropped off in his well, my, my dad was a metalhead my oh, dad well, uh, got go. into black sabbath in the 70s so i mean i literally don't remember pre-metal that's a similar thing my he got my me dad... into celtic frost he got okay, me into okay. rotting christ so okay he was deeper that, than my dad okay <laughs> <laughs> that's a very different experience for me like i i found all of this stuff mostly on my own um I, I wish I had your experience. <laughs> Would have made things so much easier. Um, in that way, at least. Um, obviously, none of us. Yeah. Anyway, before we get into <laughs> tangential stuff like that, um, my experience. I was not an Entombed fan uh, when I probably first heard them. Um, I think my first exposure was, I think it was one of those Metal for the Masses DVD compilations, and it had the music video for Eye for an Eye off of what would later be actually a favorite album of mine, Morningstar. And I thought it was sort of odd um, at the time. And then I think a lot of stuff I remember in like the mid-2000s, even a little bit of the late-2000s, People would expose to me, but oftentimes it was sort of adversarially. And I know I've mentioned this before where it's like, oh, you should check this out because you listen to this and that sucks and this is better. So you should listen to this, which would just immediately make me like, fuck you. I like this thing. So if you think this is better, that must be shit. Fuck you. 
<laughs> and Entombed was one of those where, because I think I was a really huge, you know, no one would say it back then, but stand for like Morbid Angel. Like, I still think like the first four albums are some of the best death metal to ever be made. Well, yeah, and, it, it, that, that's just true. Like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but it people just would is. be like, yeah, but right? people would be like, At the Gates <laughs> is better, Suffocation's better, and someone I know said Entombed is better. And then I was just immediately dismissive because it was like, it was making a competition where to praise one would mean to devalue another. Uh, I'm getting heated now, and I'm hearing this all <laughs> secondhand. I'm like, look, I love Suffocation. I love yeah. Effigy of the Forgotten, but there is no way they are better it, than Morbid Angel. Th- that is just I thought you were going in a way less cool direction. I thought you were going to be like, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't want to check out Entombed because people kept sending to them, them to me when I was like, oh, yeah, Bloodbath's the best thing ever. Because that's I definitely spent a lot of my teenage years shoving Entombed down people's throats when they would talk up Bloodbath. Well, Bloodbath is tight. Uh, yeah, not not nope, quite. Like you're that. wrong. No, nope, uh, you're wrong again. Two thumbs again. down. Two nope, thumbs blood, down this time. Bloodbath rules. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's a good thing we're not recording as a person. Langdon and Brandon would have uh, fisticuffs right now. There are no um, commas. But I'm a simple oh, man. I hear like death metal Langdon, and I go, I've, yeah. Kind of with Langdon. My my real introduction to death metal was through stuff like Opeth and In Flames in the very early 2000s. Um, and then I discovered the American stuff and, you know, I really got big into death and Morbid Angel in particular. Um, so then it was, again, a couple years later getting introduced in Tomb and kind of being like standoffish with it. But eventually, you know, I think getting over that artificial competition, I was able to kind of independently get into it. And it's it, like, I feel like everything kind of grew on me. Like, I think at first I did like left hand path and I like clandestine and kind of stuck with that. And then eventually I was like, Oh, well, you know, let me give Wolverine blues another try. And then I was like, Oh, I do like this. And then forever reason, a lot of the later stuff is connected with me. And just over the years, it's grown more and more and more. Like I, I'm, I'm a real stickler for using like last FM, um, I don't know why, just my brain is fucked up and I have to keep track of every track I listen to. Um, I think I think a certain amount of listeners will have come from the era where everyone had Soul Seek and Last mm-hmm, FM. So mm-hmm. that's <laughs> that's true. Um, so I could even you know, categorically see like, oh, yeah, like I definitely started listening to this more and more and more. Um, and I like having that ability to kind of analyze myself in that way. Um and I, I want to broach this and we'll maybe end the discussion on this um, with getting everyone involved. Um, I think the real kind of like puncture in the wall where I was sort of like a middling fan and really became a hard fan was uh, finally seeing Entomb live. And I know not, not maybe not everyone has because certainly before it became AD, um, you know, some people may not have seen them, but uh, I want to ask the group, you know, do you have any live experiences either seen Entombed or Entombed AD? And, and what was that like for you? Because for me, it was definitely seeing them in Maryland Death Fest in 2010, Entombed, um, that is, uh, that was a big moment for me. And I think before we talk about this really quick sidebar because you mentioned the competition, and this was on my very short list of things that we had to talk about. You mentioned a competition where you felt like, you know, you didn't want to admit that they were better or that you didn't want to listen to them because you felt like there was this competition. And 
Entombed was literally the only Swedish death metal band that a lot of Americans in the 90s listened to because there was this mentality that was really widespread that European death metal, especially Swedish death metal, was just wimpy, it was weak, it had too much melody, it was too catchy, whatever, what have you. But Entombed was the one band that everyone liked. And I don't want to make a big point, and I I do want to get back to what we were supposed to be talking about, but I don't want to forget because Entombed was just that badass that even when everyone hated their scene in America, they still fucking loved Entombed. I mean, it helps that. So th- one of the reasons that um that that John, uh, the the co-editor in chief with Ted, isn't here right now is because he mentioned that his introduction to the world of death metal obviously loves all kinds of different kinds of metal, including Entombed, but that his introduction to death metal was more on that melodic end, and so it's like, yeah, I don't want to you know step into an area where I. I'm not going to be able to speak as confidently as in other places. It's like, okay, that makes sense. But I think that actually touches on something that, that you were just saying, Brandon, which is that for the longest time outside of Europe, that was the perception of the European scene. Um, and especially the Swedish scene that it, that it revolved around early in flames, early at the gates that had all these, like the people who weren't called melodic death metal yet, but would eventually not only be called that, but would found the style but we've since re- retroactively learned, especially from European bands that were vocal, that we had this whole other world. Like, like Grave does not sound melodic. They are not a melodic death metal band. They are they are the truest form of death metal, which is death metal for people who can't read, um, who once knew fuck. how to. And I love it. Yeah. I fucking love Grave. Love it. Skull it's like dragon. oh, it's much as much as I love the the death Swedish metal that convulse. makes me feel right. It's like. As much as I love the death metal that makes me feel like I can do calculus and see through dimensions and shit, love that. I love also the death metal where I'm like, I have lost that ability and now I need help to eat food. Um, (laughs) There's something like the fact that death metal can hold both of those or do them at the same time. And it speaks a lot to it speaks a lot specifically to Entombed that they were able to um, that even despite this stuff existing and being like well known, like what you were saying, that was able to. To puncture that, I, I also have another thought after our live thing um, about basically about Entombed Core. But uh, I want to share my Entombed Core band with you guys after we're done with this. Very intrigued to hear it. Nice. Um, I do actually no. I, I'll I'll say I'll say a live experience, so that way I'm not just derailing shit. So um, <laughs> right. I, I only Good. saw them. I only saw them as enslaved, uh, not enslaved, Jesus Christ. Uh, I have seen enslaved, though. Love them. Um, I only saw them as Entombed AD just because of, I think they stopped touring as Entombed around like 20, 2009 or 2010. Um, 2012 or 2013, I think was the transition. Oh, wow. That was, that was a lot later um, than I thought. I guess I just hadn't seen them around, but uh, they did a pretty serious touring cycle for that first um, Entombed AD and were playing on festivals and stuff like that. I saw them around the same time that I was finally checking off some like big name death metal bands that I just hadn't seen. So like I saw them around the first time that I saw Napalm Death around the first time that I saw Cannibal Corpse, you know, just and again, similar to hearing Left Hand Path for the first time and really having it set in, it was less something specific about I need to go see Entombed because of something special. It was around the same time also I saw uh, Immolation for the first time. Um, and more just 
you see enough shows with young bands, up and coming bands, hungry bands. You see them, you know, in small shows. You see these these bigger productions as well. And then you wind up seeing these like veteran road dog bands that know exactly like the level of professionalism in terms of like how they paced the set list, how they like handled the crowd. They weren't overly like wordy. They weren't like trying to be, you know, like big showman in that way. But just like it was just such like a perfectly executed death metal show. Like. Again, it prototypical, that kind of vibe where it's like I can point to other people who did who do specific things better, but it almost feels like they would go to something like this and go, this is how it's supposed to be done. And now my job is to find one thing to do different. And it's like, but this is the guts. Like it was just like gruesome, nasty death metal with sick. The vocals actually sounded good live, which. Uh, this means more to Joe. I, uh, you grow up going to Jack's a lot. You're used to vocals <laughs> not sounding good yeah, or or being audible whatsoever. I mean, a venue set up uh, can mean a lot for a show. Oh, yeah. Um, Ted, did, have you seen either uh, iteration before? Uh, no, I don't think so. But again, the live album, good enough to excuse any later <laughs> challenges. Yeah. Uh, okay. Brandon, uh, do you ever catch them? I'm not afraid to admit that I, as a as a pretty big purist in death metal, uh, had many opportunities to see Entombed. And because I knew that the set list wouldn't be the first two albums, I skipped them every time. And in hindsight, that might not have been the <laughs> best call now that Lars has passed away. But uh, as with many of those bigger, older death metal bands, you know, like you guys are talking about your first time seeing like Cannibal Corpse or Obituary or whatever. Like, I mean, I, I've i seen, I've been to a fucking ton of shows. I like to fly out to festivals. I still haven't seen most of the really big names just because I know that they're not going to play the entirety of my favorite album and then step off the stage. So I just don't want to see them if they're not going to play, you know, the 90s stuff. So I, I never caught Entombed and I kind of regret it now, though. Entomb does still do shows every now and then under the Entomb name playing old stuff. They just put out a live album with a different vocalist um, of running through all a clandestine in 2016. And it is super killer and it is not to be missed. I would, I'm definitely going to check that out. I think I heard about that, actually. I think I remember when they were doing that run of shows. The, um, um, I just didn't want to say anything about it in case I was remembering wrong and just sounded like a dumbass. They've been a little, it's weird because I haven't heard much about like how active they really are or are going to be. Um, but you're all right. It pretty much all my, you know, the three main previous members of Entombed, which is Alex, Ufe and Nikki have gone back together. Um, and they've played a couple of shows doing mostly stuff off of clandestine. And I think it's some other shows as well. Left hand path material, just playing the old school death metal. Um, and I definitely would love to see that. Um, that would be pretty amazing. Uh, I, I think it's fair to admit that is sort of purely a nostalgic kind of thing to have, which I'm fine with in metal. I mean, I love it when a band's like, Hey, we're going to play an old album front to back. I wasn't around, uh, at least aware of metal in the nineties and certainly not in the eighties. So 
any of those opportunities to see stuff like the album had just came out. I'm all down for that. It's also um, something that I think for, for that specific point, we see a lot of complaints about it. And like some people will cite it as I'm putting this in scare quotes because I think it's dumb. The inherently conservative nature of of heavy metal, um, which which I think is is silly because most like I think I can speak for all of us. We all listen to a lot of new music, like a lot of new music, like a like a goofy amount of new music. So to get this idea of like, yeah, and I'd like to see some of my favorite bands play the material of them that I love the most isn't it would be one thing if that was our only interaction with heavy metal or if that was someone's like real only interaction with it. But by and large, for most of us, it's like, no, I love all kinds of bands where it's like they only have demos out right now or like they they're just put out their first record or so it's like I it's not really this this competition that people present it and agreed especially like so this ties a little bit into um into like the entombed core point that i was thinking about that like that's one of the things that i find so fascinating specifically about hearing a record like specifically left hand path played again is we you get sometimes the perspective from people that the point of music is the music itself and you should imagine it no cover art there's almost no band members like almost like a new criticism style approach to music and there's value to that i'm not going to say that there's no value but one of the things that we naturally do listen to with stuff is not music as an end point but as like as like a beginning point, like not, not to be horribly cliche, but the thought of like, what else can be done with this? If this is the first step on some new musical arc, what else can be? And that's part of where we get groups like The Cure or Pink Floyd being as well esteemed as they are, because clearly like you can put them on for someone who's like 14 now, no, really no matter what they're listening to. And they'll hear it and go, oh, my God, I can do so much with this, with what I'm doing, or I can imagine this mixed with this thing. And and they're right. You know, we get, you know, lots of different contemporary shades of hip hop and death metal and all this different kinds of stuff black metal experimental stuff hardcore all from those spaces and the legacy of entombed core even if you don't necessarily like a lot of those bands you should they're tight um one of the things that sort of speaks to is like entombed and left hand path specifically as this creative like seed it didn't feel like the end of an idea it literally like it can still gives birth to to new i like new artists and new ideas and then you know those people will play two records of entombed core and immediately start throwing in other stuff and i don't know that's like anyone who's ever made anything whether you know you only sold it to friends and family or whether it actually had an audience that kind of response of like 30 years record 30 years later your record is inspiring people to start playing music and start making their own like I don't know. That's bananas. I, I have to tip my hat to that. That's that's fucking awesome, I especially because it makes people play hardcore that rules. It's true. I will say that I think that it's kind of bullshit that most entombed core bands do not sound anything like entombed and they all sound like dismember or repugnant. And it's like it's like back in the 90s, you had a bunch of bands that sounded just like entombed, like you had like Godified. And, you know, it's like. Where 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 were the Godifieds of the of the thousand scene? I mean, you know, it's, I feel like I feel kind of ripped off. Like, where are the bands that really 
wanted to sound like Left Hand Path enough to to do it right. Because all of the Thousands clones that actually sounded like Left Hand Path kind of sucked. And then the good bands were all the ones that called themselves Entombed Core and talked about all the influence they had from Entombed, but didn't sound anything like Entombed. And as a major fan of Left Hand Path, I find that very disappointing. Big thumbs down from Brandon. <laughs> He's been flashing thumbs up and thumbs down all all night. It's 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 been tight. It's a it's a, it's a fair um, argument for potentially transitioning this to a YouTube channel, but we'll see. Well, I I do think I do think there is actually something to be said there because um, if I remember correctly, didn't like an ever flowing stream uh, come out after Left Hand Path? Yes, um, two years later, and, I think. Yeah, and. Yeah, and it's like they were (laughs) – Entombed were obviously, in short, pretty big in the Swedish death metal scene, pretty well-liked. So the likelihood of – the likelihood of a band citing Entombed and accidentally sounding more like Dismember still can be someone drawing influence from Entombed, but just like this is where the idea goes. And you can also kind of see that on Clandestine, where like Clandestine and like an ever-flowing stream are are much closer to each other in sound than, you know, left-hand path. But also I do be loving me some Dismember, so I never complain when I get uh, Entombed core that happens to be Dismember core. We we actually had a fairly uh, fairly good argument between me and... uh, me and Andrew Lee about this because he he was hard standing that uh, Wolverine blues and I was like no it's dismember that's, season buddy that's my biggest argument with Andrew is uh, is that I, <laughs> you know, he's he's one of my best friends and uh, yeah he rules he's he's a great he's, guy <laughs> he likes so much music that just fucking sucks I tell him that to his face every day. <laughs> He and I bonded over. It's like we love dumbass grindcore and also Dream Theater. We are oh. both of the guys who like that. We're all two of us. It's it us. Shit, we didn't have Andrew on here. How much Dream Theater sucks? Yeah, he, <laughs> I'm used to being alone in this one. I, I revel in it. <laughs> revel in flesh. Uh, exactly. <laughs> that was good. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to Screaming Bloody Oranges, the Invisible Oranges podcast, via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean, and other streaming services. We'll make a post on our website at www.invisibleoranges.com to accompany the release of each episode. Visit us anytime for more in-depth heavy metal coverage that goes a step above and beyond. (laughs) 